actually it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing, which came first, the more virtuosic music or the instruments and equipment that could handle that. Cheers! Cheers! Uh, don't drink that yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> Welcome to Pour Me a Mozart. I'm Asia, and I have with me today Lindsay, and we are drinking to a Bijou and Box Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Four, mm. which Lindsay didn't know what we were drinking quite yet. I wanted it to be a surprise. Yeah. So should we try the drink? Yeah. Well, that was probably really loud. <laughs> that is potent. Ooh. So the drink is called a Bijou. A bijou. We'll talk about that that more later. Okay. But before we talk about the drink, I wanted to talk about you, Lindsay. Lindsay and I met because we were both musicians. Mm -hmm. And as I was thinking about the podcast today, I was thinking we met at college, but we actually didn't. You remember? Yeah. Sorry, Tori. Yeah, slightly before. Well, okay, this was slightly before I went to college, and Mm -hmm. I'm one year older than you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was... The summer before I went to college, I was an intern at a string uh, little, I guess you'd call it a music camp. Um, we went to band it's camp, like, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, string camp for, I think the focus was string quartets. Mm-hmm. So little young musicians go and kind of learn how to make music with other kids. Yeah. And it's a, a different skill than just growing up and taking music lessons or even playing an orchestra. Is. Totally. Yeah. And you were actually like kind of a teacher type person and I was a camper. I was just a straight yeah. up camper. Which was weird. I mean, we didn't work together, but I mm-hmm. just like met you, I guess, there. And I, I was kind of working with some of the younger kids. But yeah, mm-hmm. it is kind of weird that I'm only one year older. And yeah. And that's you were just a camper how that worked out. I was out. an intern. Yeah. <laughs> But we did go to our undergrads together. Yeah. And we weren't, I was thinking about this today too, we weren't like really friends, not because we didn't like each other, just like we just didn't really interact Mm -hmm. that much. And I think the, where we went to school, the the different violin studios, you know, the different teachers, if you had a different teacher than someone else, then you just didn't interact as much. Like, which is so weird. Yeah. But also I hung out with mostly singers. Oh, in school, yeah, because I was an oddball, I guess. <laughs> um, but we really connected. I think this was six years ago now when we started playing in the Buffalo Community Orchestra together. Mm-hmm. Um, Lindsay was the concertmaster until this current season, and I'm mm-hmm. still principal second. She left me, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, that's where our friendship really began. Yep, yep, on those long commutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, long Good times. cold commutes right now. Out to Buffalo. So we'll talk a lot more about the violin on this episode because of Brandenburg and just, I guess, who we are as people. I wanted to ask, if you didn't play the violin, what would you do? Are you asking what other instrument would I play or what other job would I have? Both. Okay. I've also thought, or I've thought before, um, my personality is, I think, kind of less of a soloist personality like the thought of soloing with an orchestra scares me a lot and (laughs) but so many violinists you know that's what they strive for Mm -hmm. um so I'm kind of less of a stereotypical violinist personality wise and I'd probably prefer to play like the viola or cello if I'm gonna pick a string instrument but 
I don't know. I also just love the French horn. Oh, I love the French horn too. <laughs> Such so, a good instrument. Maybe that. Non-music wise, I really wanted to be a dentist when I was growing up. I just thought it fit my personality. I'm very meticulous with certain things and I like to see the progress in what I'm doing, hmm. which makes music hard for me because you don't always see or hear the progress when you're practicing. It's yeah. not always tangible. Or linear. Yes. Which is really frustrating. Yeah. Both for me and uh, students, and I'm sure you found that in your teaching also. Yes. Students, mm-hmm. like, one week it's great, and then the next week they've gone completely sideways. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? It's what interesting, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they develop and change over time. I've had some students that are really into it one year, and then the next year they're not so into it. and Yeah. Yeah. Or vice versa. Yeah, I've thought about going back to school, not to make this a profession, but uh, for child psychology, just because Mm. I think a lot of that has to do with, like, what's going on in kids' brains when they're 8 versus 9 versus 10 years old. Yeah. That's a lot of change. Yeah. That would be useful stuff to know for teaching an instrument. Yeah, but then I think, like, I could probably just read several books and then decide if I want to invest (laughs) in more education. Yeah. What do you do in your free time? Well, I am married and we have two dogs, so my husband Dave and I often will just like watch Netflix or something on a free night. Sometimes we like to cook. In the summer I like to garden. You Uh, guys have made some amazing things. (laughs) We do like to make a lot of things from scratch, Mm -hmm. Um, so sometimes we make bread like totally by hand. What was it a couple years ago that Dave was like all crazy about? Was it butter? Oh, we made butter once in our <laughs> KitchenAid mixer. Yeah. It's really not hard. You just pour some heavy cream in your KitchenAid mixer, and you have to wrap it in saran wrap because okay. it'll get messy after a few minutes. But you like turn it on high, and it starts to separate after quite a while. Like It's a while. At first, we were like, we didn't have to wrap saran wrap around this. And then it, <laughs> suddenly, it just kind of curdles, and you get the the big thing of butter and then it's just like juice all around it splattering (laughs) everywhere sounds so unappetizing (laughs) but the funny thing is like it sounds when you say it it sounds so simple but Dave was my boss at the time you guys did this (laughs) and that was all he would talk about that day he like would not (laughs) stop talking about it yeah I don't even remember. That sounds like Dave. (laughs) I mean, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, there's another connection we have is, well, I mean, we were already friends, but then, well, we were friends long before I met Dave, Mm -hmm. and then it turns out that where Dave works, which is a a local music store, um, they hired Asia to work in their string shop. I, I remember we were out for drinks one time, and Dave was like, hey, I know you like your job. I was bartending at the time. Actually, I was like, I might be on the fence about this one. Um, Mm -hmm. But he mentioned it to me. Yeah. And I was like, no. And then, like, a month later, I was like, but please. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah. Is there another thing that you do a lot in your free time? Um. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't a leading question at all. (laughs) Yeah, we were actually just talking about this. Um, Yeah, I also really like to arrange songs for string quartet and when I say songs I mean pop songs rock songs uh, stuff that isn't classical music typically recently I well I'm almost done with Don't Stop Me Now by Queen 
um, which is one of my probably all-time favorite songs. Mm. And we played it at our wedding dance. You probably danced with us to that. It's likely. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, it's it's a you know I think it's come up as the happiest song in the world or something when someone made a list of the happiest songs in the world or whatever or the most like feel good song or something like that it is a very good good feel feel good (laughs) good feel good song yeah (laughs) um but yeah I've I've arranged probably I don't know 30 songs for string quartet which kind of is is a hobby that came out of Uh, I used to work in a string quartet on cruise ships, and we were performing every day, so we got really tired of the few pop arrangements we had, and we were getting requests for more, and we just thought, why don't we just write our own arrangements? Mm -hmm. Also, internet access and access to new music was really tough because, I mean, we had to get stuff from the internet, but we had very little and very slow internet (laughs) access. Yeah. So yeah, we were just like, yeah, let's just write our own arrangements. And and so that's kind of how that got started. And I've enjoyed doing it ever since. Yeah, your stuff is super fun to play. And do you want to give a plug for your YouTube channel? Sure. you guys have one. We do. Um, uh, So that group that performed on ships was called Talia Strings. And it's spelled T-H-A-L-I-A, Strings. And we have probably like 40-some videos on YouTube. They're not professional-level recordings or anything. But they're but good, and they're fun, and yeah, you guys sound great. It's almost all of our own arrangements. Yeah. Some of them are other friends' arrangements and things, but... Yeah. And your quartet, I still have yet to meet the violist, mm-hmm. but the rest of your quartet is a super good time. Mm-hmm. Like they're just really great people. Yeah, yeah they're so. wonderful people and wonderful friends. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite food? Mm, maybe pizza or ice cream. Oh, I, I have ice cream salt that I need to give you. Oh, Do you remember when you oh, made yeah. it on the 4th of July? I still oh, have yeah. your thing of ice cream salt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just salt for out. like an ice cream maker. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I crave ice cream every time of year, even if it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> and pizza is another one of those things that I can just eat anytime. Oh, there have so been good. times, like actually just a few weeks ago, I, I made myself a frozen pizza, and then the next night Dave ordered a pizza because he didn't know I had had pizza the <laughs> night before, and then the next night after that, my parents came into town and they ordered pizza, and we all got together. And then it sounds like a great so week. three nights in a row, plus I still had pizza leftovers from two different pizzas in the fridge. <laughs> So it was pizza everywhere. Isn't that the best, though? Like, when you have something you can just throw in the microwave, and then yeah. there's lunch. Yeah. Like, meal prep, except pizza. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite drink? I drink a lot of sparkling water, so probably, oh, yeah. you know, just a good everyday drink, just sparkling water. We we have a soda stream, too, so it doesn't need to have flavor. It's good if it does, but... What's your favorite flavor? Um, probably mango. That's one of my favorites. That sounds good. And then alcoholic drinks, I'm not too picky. I kind of, I go with whatever my mood is at the time. So whether it's Mm. beer, a lot of times at home we'll have 
a beer with a movie or something. Sometimes we'll have wine. If I'm out at a nice cocktail place, I might want a cocktail, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's just kind of whatever mood You like in. to try new things, Yeah, which is great. Let's talk about the bijou a little bit. Yeah. I had Lindsay help me arrange the picture, and I was putting all this jewelry that I kind of hoped didn't look like jewelry, and then I realized I kind of don't care if it looks like jewelry, mm-hmm. but I didn't tell you that because I didn't want to give it away. So bijou actually means jewel in French, mm. and the three ingredients are meant to resemble jewels. So the ingredients are gin, sweet vermouth, and chartreuse. The gin is clear, that represents diamond. Sweet vermouth is red, that represents ruby, and chartreuse is green, and that represents Ooh. emerald. Yeah. Fancy. So it turns out kind of an orangish color. Is that from the mix of red and green? I think so. Um, if you look at pictures online, some have used a little bit more chartreuse, or there might be a less red sweet vermouth, too. Don't quote me on that. That might just be dry vermouth. <laughs> um, but like I found out, there's clear brandy, which I, mm, yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't either. So Sirius Eats, a website, credits Rachel Maddow. Maddow? Rachel Maddow? Maddow. Maddow, I think. Okay. (laughs) Rachel on Jimmy Fallon for um, kind of bringing this drink to the forefront. She was on his show, I think, in 2009. That's kind of what I deducted from this article. So she kind of brought it back into pop culture, but its earliest roots are um, Harry Johnson. He wrote a book in 1900, or like 1890s, early 1900s, um, and his recipe was equal parts gin, sweet vermouth, and chartreuse. Oh, and there's also orange bitters. But the drink disappeared after Prohibition, unlike the Manhattan and the Martini. And it was rediscovered in the 1980s by Dale DeGroff, who is known as the king of cocktails. And he changed the ratios a little bit, and now it's a little more open, like I was saying. Like, um, some people could use more chartreuse than sweet vermouth, so that you do get more of that green color or the chartreuse flavor. Mm -hmm. That's all I want to say about the drink. What I really want to talk about is chartreuse. That's why I picked this drink. Mm. So that's in the cup that I told you to not drink oh, from yeah. early. Okay. Earlier. So we're going to drink some chartreuse. I want you to tell me what you taste in it. It's nothing like drinking pure liquor. Liqueur. Ooh. Hmm. It's like a little bit sour and bitter. Um, but it's sweet too. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to tell. I don't know. I have to take another sip. Yeah, do it. I think it's kind of like an explosion of flavor at the beginning, and then it mellows out and sweetens out towards the end, but like my tongue is still a little bit tingly. Or maybe that's just because it's like straight alcohol. Yeah, my tongue is tingly too. (laughs) I'm at a loss for words. I don't know how to describe it. So um, a lot of people just say it's herbal. Uh, Yeah, I can see that. It's actually a secret recipe made by Carthusian monks since 1737 off of instructions they received on some sort of manuscript from Francois Anibal de Destray mm-hmm. um, in 1605. So this is a very oh. old recipe. It's named for the monks Grand Chartreuse Monastery in mm-hmm. the Chartreuse Mountains re- Chartreuse mm-hmm. Mountains in the region of Grenoble in France. I am very intrigued by this liqueur because I like the taste of it and it's it is kind of an indescribable yeah. taste. And I have my throat feels nice and warm now. Actually too. mine does too. The tingle yeah. has moved. <laughs> it's like what people say about whiskey, mm-hmm. but I actually like the taste of this a lot better than whiskey. Yeah. yeah I mean it's same. definitely a sipping thing. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> unless you want to have a real bad stomach ache. Yeah. Because it is it is pretty sweet. It is syrupy. sweet. Yeah. But not so sweet that I don't know. There is a lot of sweet things, sweet liqueurs that I wouldn't want to just sip. 
on their own. That's true. What I find fascinating about this is, I can't remember if this is the one that has over 300 ingredients in it. Um, people have tried to imitate it. Uh, and I was just going to say, it's like this is already a cocktail. So that's interesting that, yeah. you, were, that you said that, because I was literally just thinking, it's yeah. like a cocktail. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, Jillian was on the podcast, and mm-hmm. she actually left her book, The Drunken Botanist, here. Mm. And so I was paging through it and uh, to try to look at chartreuse, and all of the mentions were these different herbs that they're like, we think this is probably in chartreuse. And it was just like a whole bunch of stuff. Wow. But the um, we had one imitation at the bar that I worked at that I absolutely hated because one of the flavors in there is menthol, and you get like very... Mm subtle menthol notes or not menthol is that cigarettes it's like an, a minty thing yeah okay. I think you're right I'm thinking minty not yeah. smoky <laughs> yeah and this imitation just had so much mint in it I was like oh it's like hmm. drinking mouthwash it, like I oh, didn't yeah. like it this does not taste like straight up menthol or yeah there's or, no or mouthwash it is often imitated, never duplicated. Mm. Um, something else I think is cool about it is the color chartreuse is actually named for the liqueur. Oh. Because of the color it is in the bottle. There are two varieties wow. of chartreuse. There's green chartreuse, which is what we are drinking. It is 55% alcohol, um, ABV alcohol by volume. And then yellow chartreuse is a little bit sweeter, um, and it has less alcohol, so it's 40% ABV. Okay. And what... The other cool thing about this is it continues to age in the bottle. So bottles that have been opened taste different if they were opened like 10 years ago, and the color will change a little bit too. Mm. There's a big cocktail festival in New Orleans, I think every like July, June or July. And Mm. there's like one of the things you can go to is a chartreuse tasting where you can try like 50 year old chartreuse and like five year old chartreuse. Right? Mm-hmm. I want to go just mm-hmm. for that. Let's see. I totally lost my place in my notes. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear that I am excited about chartreuse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the recipe that I used for our drink was not equal parts of all three. I used an ounce and a half of gin, three quarters ounce chartreuse, and three quarters ounce sweet vermouth. And for the sweet vermouth, I used cokey. The gin was Hendrix gin. Oh, and then Reagan's orange bitters. If you're a super fancy home bartender, you would probably make your own bitters, but I have never done that. And then the glasses. Oh, Were yeah. Were talk about that? Yeah. So I um, stuck a couple martini glasses in the freezer this morning. So the gra- glasses were frosted, mm-hmm. which that disappeared really quickly. <laughs> yeah. But when I've gone to martini bars in the past, I think that's something I've seen before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it seems like a common thing for this style of drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just like a little extra something something because i love chartreuse i wanted to share a couple other cocktails with chartreuse in them they're both classic cocktails the last word is very similar to this drink it has gin green chartreuse Um, it also has maraschino liqueur which would kind of take the place of the sweet vermouth and lime juice and then another one that uh kelsey farr if you're listening it's called the yellow jacket it's tequila uh saint germain which is an elderflower liqueur. This uses mm. yellow chartreuse and then orange bitters and garnish, garnish with a lemon twist. Sounds good, too. Yeah, it's a good summer drink. So the reason I wanted to talk about chartreuse when I talked about Bach is because there is a rumor that, oh, so only two of the Carthusian monks know the entire recipe. Whoa. 
Yeah, there are only two people in the world. I think there are other people who do like parts of it, Um, but that's how secret it is. There's a rumor that these two monks are not allowed to travel together in case like one Mm -hmm. of them dies or yeah. well both of them die. yeah <laughs> yeah because then the, the huh. recipe would just be gone um wow so i think how do they make enough chartreuse for the world if it's just two of them that make it there or know it yeah so i think um the whole monastery works on it but it's like a factory like you know one small part of it okay but how do you keep everyone from talking to each other i don't know yeah um it's also not cheap i think it's like a $50 bottle. Wow. Yeah, but worth it. Yeah. Well, this thanks is... for sharing your super expensive hey, liqueur with you're me. welcome. <laughs> um, this is the first bottle of chartreuse I've ever purchased, and I've been mm. kind of been looking for an excuse to have some in my mm. liquor cabinet. And this was the perfect excuse. Yay. I think you were in the chamber music program when Bach's Bible traveled to the University of Minnesota. I don't remember that. But okay, <laughs> it was um, it was a Friday afternoon when we were supposed to have like our chamber music meeting yeah. or whatever, and Tom Rosenberg was like, "We are not doing this, but you are all coming to see Box Bible." And I was like, "Whatever, I'll do it for a class. I'd like I'll do what I'm told." But I went, and it was super cool because Bach. We'll get more into Bach later, uh-huh. but he was mainly employed by the church, uh-huh. so, and he was also. Um, a very highly esteemed religious scholar. So he, he actually has three giant volumes that make up one Bible. Mm-hmm. And kind of like Chartreuse, they only allow two of them at a time to travel outside of the Smithsonian. They have like oh. all of his notes and stuff in it, which okay. is super cool. Wow. So yeah. that's my like really cool but kind of loose connection between Bach and Chartreuse. Okay. Also, do you remember when Bach was born? I know the year, 1685. Uh, Does it say Chartreuse is older than Bach. So Bach, had he traveled to France, he could have had it. He might have had some Chartreuse. So before we dive too deep into Bach, I wanted to jump back to you and talk about the three main genres of music that you play. Okay. So, yeah, I play... Well, kind of like your standard violinist, I play classical gigs. Um, I I actually have three different violins that I use. <laughs> so we'll call this first one my modern violin, even though it's the oldest one I have. It was built in Vienna in 1799. <laughs> Pretty old. Not older than yeah. Chartreuse, though. And not as old as Bach. But it was built during Beethoven's lifetime, which oh, makes cool. me really, yeah, I, I like that little fact. But yeah, so this is my, by far my nicest violin too, Um, and I use it for classical gigs, play with some local orchestras and and things, and string quartet, and random one-off kind of union gigs, Mm -hmm. things like when traveling acts come through and play at a theater or a casino, sometimes I'll do that. Oh, like Michael Bublé or Michael Bolton or yeah. Celtic Woman or, you know. Yes. Yeah. like a... Hanson. <laughs> Hanson. That's right. You got to play with Hanson, too. Yeah, so it's, it's some fun gigs. But yeah, so I use that for probably mm, 75% of my playing um, and most of, and for my teaching. And then I also play in a bluegrass band. And for that, I have an old hand-me-down violin that used to belong to my great-grandpa, 
his name was Robert Sanis, and he scratched his initials into the back of the violin, which oh. we don't do nowadays. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, if you're a serious professional, remember that violin that came into the music store? I'm sure Dave sent you a picture of it. It was all scratched up, and the parent was like, my kid didn't do that, my kid didn't do that, and then you flip it over, and the kid's initials are scratched in the back, and it's like, <laughs> uh, okay, maybe my kid did that. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I don't know if I saw pictures of it. Oh, I'm but... surprised. It was quite the sight. <laughs> wow, yeah. So yeah, there's RCS scratched into the back of this violin, and it's you know, not a perfect violin, actually, when I had it restored so that I could play it, because it was kind of not in playable condition when I first acquired it. I had it restored in the the luthier, or, you know, person who works on string instruments, who restored it for me, said it it looks like it's uh, from Germany around the turn of the century, like early 1900s, and um, it's Violins like this were often bought from, like, Sears Roebuck uh, (laughs) uh, catalogs. So it's very possible that he just ordered this violin from a catalog. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, it's the workmanship on it is not perfect, but it gets the job done, and it's uh, a pretty decent violin. I use it for bluegrass music. Um, I have a a five-piece bluegrass band. I didn't start it, but um, yeah, we're called No Man's String Band. Do you want to share a website or Facebook, Uh, Instagram? I think our website is just nomansstringband.com, but I could be wrong. (laughs) Google it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, we're in the process of recording our third album right now. Oh, that's right. So, yeah. You might get to hear that violin soon. Although we have, I'm on the second album too with with that violin. Um, and then I, the uh, the third violin that I haven't mentioned yet is my Baroque violin, and that one is strangely, it's the newest violin that I own. Oh, it is. Even though, yeah, it's meant to. It's a replica of what a violin would have been like in the okay. Baroque era. And violins do still survive from then, but they're either way out of my price range or if they're in my price range, they probably don't sound that good. <laughs> so, or in not very good condition or something. So, um, yeah, it's it's like a modern kind of Chinese instrument made to be like a Baroque violin. And so some of the differences there are it uses gut strings, so strings actually made from cow or sheep intestines never cat that was never true yeah and i think historically it was more often sheep but because of the beef industry we have Mm. you know lots of access to cow gut and so that's often what's used nowadays but yeah sheep gut it's interesting there's even kind of a tone distinction sheep gut tends to be a little warmer of a sound but it's more expensive yeah huh yeah So the types of strings are different Um, compared to modern violin. We it's usually well the E string on a violin is just a piece of steel, but the other strings are wound with metal around like a synthetic core. So if you can imagine like a nylon guitar string or something, it's like 
essentially that with metal around wound around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably not being super correct here, but <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, I actually have a wound E string. Oh, I didn't know they made those. Mm-hmm. Wound E's are supposed to help with not whistling so okay. much, which I have to try it sometime. So yeah, the three violins, the bow is also a big difference between oh, modern yeah. and Baroque violins. Yeah. It has a curvature to it where the middle of the bow is the widest part, whereas a modern violin bow kind of is wider at the two ends and come, the wood kind of bends in towards the horsehair. But it's very slight. In the middle. Right. On the modern bow. Something that really surprised well, I knew that when you play Baroque violin, you don't use a shoulder rest, which is the thing that mm-hmm. goes under the violin, mm-hmm. but you told me that you also don't have a chin rest. Yeah, so there's kind of no apparatus to help hold it onto your shoulder and under your jaw like there is for a, mo- a modern violin, and um, so you just kind of have to balance it there, which also because to me sounds just so crazy. Yeah, it's strange. Very, very strange, especially at first. Um, And even in the modern violin world, there are teachers who will try and convince you that playing without a shoulder rest is the best thing. And I've... Yeah. It's up to the individual. Right. I've tried it, and it just, with my, like, bony clavicle and shoulder slope, it just does not work. And, but Baroque violin is a totally different setup, so the way you position your violin on your shoulder is kind of farther back, and it just has to balance there differently. Mm-hmm. And it's so for this, it works. You know, at least I, I mean, I had lessons with actual Baroque violinists to show me how to set it up, but yeah, it works a lot better than I would have thought. Although it's tricky, there's new technique to learn with the left hand too, mm-hmm. because. Uh, if, you, if you're a string player, you know this term, but shifting is what we call it. When you move your hand up and down, up or down, I should say, the the fingerboard and the neck of the instrument to play uh, higher notes or lower notes. As you can imagine, if, if your violin is just balanced on your shoulder and you're not holding your chin down mm-hmm. to hold it there, shifting is just going to like bring the instrument with your hand so <laughs> yeah that's a trickier thing um sometimes you have to put your chin down a little bit just to shift yes yeah. it's, it's an added challenge i always think that the demands were a little bit different for baroque violin but in listening to this piece that's not entirely true yeah i think in many ways baroque music it was kind of simpler as equipment got actually it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing which came first um the more virtuosic music or the instruments and equipment that could handle that Mm -hmm. so i think the two kind of pushed each other along and yeah and sense yeah so more virtuosic music came along with changes to the instrument that allowed for more free hand motion and things like that. But uh, I forgot what I was going to (laughs) say. That's okay. Should we talk about Bach? Yeah. So again, if you didn't catch it at the beginning, our piece that we chose to talk about today is the fourth Brandenburg Concerto. He wrote six of them, and I'll, I'll get more to that in a little bit. Bach was born in 1685 in what is now Germany. He came from a very musical family. Uh, His father was the town, like, 
music leader it sounded like he was kind of like a conductor the town music director I yeah I remember that being a job title that I heard about music history and I was like town music leader like what (laughs) (laughs) and all of his uncles were professional musicians I just learned today huh so he had a very musical family. Um, he was the youngest of eight children, and his siblings, some of his siblings, I think, were also musicians. When he was 10, or by the time he was 10, both of his parents died, and he went to live with his oldest brother. But it's thought that his, his father, before his father died, taught him the harpsichord and the violin. Um, if you're unfamiliar with what a harpsichord is, imagine a piano but a grand piano, so it's like really long, except it's it's a, like a more petite version of that, and instead of hammers that hit the strings, it's these little quills, like feathers, that pluck the strings. Yeah. And so it has a very small, tinkery, plucky sound. It's a, it's a really cool instrument. Yeah, it is. And you'll, you'll hear it in the piece. And um, so that it's the predecessor to the piano. And so he's, he learned that and organ and violin and then continued studying, with, studying music with his older brother, or eldest brother, I should say, um, after his parents passed away and held various church jobs after that. I don't know all of the specifics. I yeah, think there were but, three main church jobs that he had throughout his life. And I am... I'm totally talking from my vague memory of music history, which was at 8 a.m. freshman year, and I almost never made it to class on time, so uh, (laughs) take this for what it is. But he had two of them had a really nice organ, but I think one, it was the second church, maybe, that didn't, and that's when he wrote the solo cello suites and the sonatas and partitas oh and also maybe when he wrote the brandenburg concertos okay because he was writing for you know the instrument or the instrumentalists that were available yeah to yeah and not so much for the organ right because he makes didn't sense. have anywhere to try it out yeah um and bach is really known for his counterpoint which is the way that the harmonies work together like the the way that the voices blend and a good example of that is one of his simplest forms of music he wrote which is called a chorale and if you imagine like a a very old church hymn it's kind of that type of sound so Bach wrote many chorales that are used even today by the Lutheran church I actually had not listened to this Brandenburg concerto Mm. before I'm actually pretty unfamiliar (laughs) with all of them except three which is the most famous yeah, I'd, I'd say at least among string players, number three is probably the most famous. I, I could sing it, but that means we have to take a drink, right? Yeah, sing it. <laughs> so it's... Anyway. Numero quattro. Okay, so these pieces, it's thought that these were kind of almost like a... He was almost like sending a resume to uh, Christian... I'm reading this, and hopefully I'm saying it right. Christian Ludwig Margrave of brandenburg Schwedt. He sent them in 1721. Although it's thought that Bach probably wrote them earlier, you know, maybe at various different times in his life. Each, each of the six Brandenburg concertos is vastly different. 
uh, from the others and mm-hmm. in instrumentation um, it's all chamber music so it's all small for small groups of instruments um, but yeah they're all so different from each other um, mm-hmm. like the first one has French horns um, the second it, among other instruments the second one has like trumpet oh, there's a very famous piccolo trumpet yeah, solo yeah very one. very difficult piccolo trumpet parts in the second Brandenburg concerto the third one is all strings and then number four number four has it's actually written for flutes two flutes uh which it's most commonly played with recorders although I've been told that flutes in that era when a composer wrote something for flutes it it could be for any type of instrument that you blow into this piece is usually played with Recorders, which is uh, the the recordings we're going to hear, mm-hmm. have recorders in them. So on Wikipedia, because you know I really did my research, mm-hmm. um, it says the two Same recorders <laughs> are described in the original score as fiotti deco, and it's not entirely certain what's meant by that. On here it says it's theorized that they should be off stage, giving an echo effect. That's interesting. I've had the opportunity to perform this piece once. We didn't perform it with off stage. I guess it does say recorders, but those in some performances, such as those conducted by Nicolas Harnoncourt, the recorders are off stage. Oh yeah, probably another thing that could have maybe possibly been meant by the echo part is that they kind of play off of each other, the two flutes, and mm-hmm. echo each other in that sense. And you'll hear that when we play the third movement, especially because, and here's a, another testament to Bach's really amazing counterpoint skill, is that it's a, a fugue, which means one instrument plays a theme, a musical theme, and then after a little while, another instrument plays the same thing, but not starting on the same note. It'll be like a transposed version of the theme. Meanwhile, the first instrument is still playing. And then another voice comes in or instrument playing the theme in a different place. And it continues until it reaches a different part called the stretto and blah, blah, blah. It does other <laughs> things too. Yeah, there's a lot to know about fugues. And yeah. I know very little. Yeah, I don't remember all of it. But yeah, maybe that's kind of what recognize... he means by echo, too. Yeah, that's true. Just kind of the imitation. We could hop in our time machine and go ask <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we could update. Oh, so back to uh, why he wrote these pieces, though. So he wrote a letter to this guy, Christian, what was his name? Something. Brand- Ludwig Dave Margrave Brandenburg. of Brandenburg Schwedt. Um... <laughs> Should I read this whole thing? Sure. Okay. So, I guess this is his dedication, but I th- I think it's either the dedication or what he wrote to the actual guy he sent these pieces of music to. It says, As I had the good fortune a few years ago to be heard by your royal highness at your royal... Or, whoops. At your highness's commands, and as I noticed then that your highness took some pleasure in the little talents which heaven has given me for music... And as in taking leave of your royal highness, your highness deigned to honor me with the command to send your highness some pieces of my composition. I have, in accordance with your highness's most gracious orders, taken the liberty of rendering my most humble duty to your royal highness with the present concertos, 
which I have adapted to several instruments, begging your highness, most humbly, not to judge their imperfection with the rigor of that discriminating and sensitive taste. He had to throw in a, a little uh, compliment. Oh, as yeah. if saying your highness 12 times was yeah. enough of a compliment? <laughs> My gosh. It keeps going. <laughs> okay. So the, the compliment was uh, begging your highness most humbly not to judge their imperfection with the rigor of that discriminating and sensitive taste. Which oh, everyone knows him to have for I musical see what you works. Did there, Bach. Yeah, <laughs> but rather to take into benign consideration the profound respect and the most humble obedience, which I thus attempt to show him. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's I would like... love to receive a letter like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's just be real. You can write to me at. <laughs> just kidding. Actually, if anyone wants to write a review on Apple Podcasts that sounds like mm. that, if you call me Your Highness like 15 <laughs> yeah. times, I might give you money. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, Bach was definitely, it seems like he was kind of sucking up and trying to win a job through these pieces. Which I never thought of Bach as having had to do. Although, I, this was a little unclear, but in some of the reading I did today, it, it sounded like Bach was maybe a little bit, he, at several of his jobs, found it hard to get along with people. Huh. And left some of his jobs because of disagreements and things, or was let go or whatever. In one case, though, he spent time in jail. What? Because, Bach went to jail? Yeah. Because oh. of... <laughs> because of, I, I think, you the way his job ended. I don't know how... <laughs> I found it somewhere on Wikipedia. That's that's all. Uh, but it, it was a little, enough. a little bit unclear like how that all happened and went down. Yeah, I wonder how many things talk about this. And I feel like... It's maybe a characteristic of, like, a savant musician, kind of. Because Beethoven was this way, too. Hmm. At least from what I know. And probably other other composers, too. But, I mean, Beethoven was notoriously hard to get along with and hot-tempered. And so was and Mozart. his teacher was Haydn. And, like, Haydn, of all people, like, the greatest, probably, teacher you could have. And they, like, butted heads. Yeah, Mozart, too. It's weird. Yeah. If you think about, like, they were creating the pop music of their time. If yeah. you think about, like, Britney Spears in 2007, like, she went <laughs> off her rocker. I'm sure she's a very lovely person to mm-hmm. work with. Like, that's kind of what I gather from her. Or, like, yeah. Justin Bieber kind of went crazy. Yeah. Too. Like. Yeah. It's, it's that hard kind of to attention know, like, isn't good for some, some classical musicians were like really well regarded and I think in his time Bach was one of them that was Mm -hmm. very highly regarded. Like one of the few that made a good living and was respected in his time. But some of them were just like suffering poor you know starving artists Beethoven and Mozart. Yeah I were they both oh one of the weird things I mean Bach lived to be 65 64 or 65 that's pretty old for that time isn't it yeah that's what I was thinking but the reason he died was complications after eye surgery it sounds so sad like that's why he should die yeah 
Also, they did surgery on the eye back then? That's just, like, why, guys? That's what they're going to say about LASIK in, like, 500 years. You're going to be yeah. like, why, guys? <laughs> why were you doing that? Yeah. I guess it's only been 300 years. Yeah, apparently, yeah, thereabouts. So, apparently, I mean, his health really was deteriorating. Um, were they trying to do brain surgery through his eye? Like, what were they? I don't know. What, well, what they it said his doing? health and eyesight began deteriorating. In, so they're uh, like seventeen. We know what to do. We will cut his eyeballs out, and that will make <laughs> him better. I don't know. Yeah, maybe they were trying to do LASIK, <laughs> pre-laser LASIK, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Bach created some lasers with his fugues that we don't know about. Maybe they're a magic code. Uh, I feel uh, like this is getting <laughs> really weird. <laughs> Should we listen to? Something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'll regroup and stop we thought the weirdness. We'd start with the first movement. It's like such happy, charming music. So we picked that clip specifically so you could hear the recorders. Yeah, and that's that kind of sets the tone for the whole piece. But it gets very crazy from there. Mm -hmm. Um, We already talked about the fugue in the third movement, which you'll still hear. But the instruments, I mean, I don't know as much about playing the recorder or the flute. But at least the violin solo part gets very virtuosic in a little bit. So we're going to play some of that, too. All right. That, that sounds like it'd be hard to play. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. So I had never played this or listened to it before you picked this piece. And I was listening to it, and this part came up, and I was like, oh, cool, the, the solo violin gets some, like, but then it just keeps going, and I was like, oof. And then I like, too, how it just kind of, like, it's like, it's just, like, and we're done. It just goes back to the happy thing. Yeah. But, yeah. And also, that's not the first time the first vi- or the solo violin part gets a crazy thing. I, that's a little more crazy, but before that, it has a, another demanding mm-hmm. solo. Yeah, I can't imagine playing something like that without having my shoulder rest and chin rest to assist. Yeah, with like all the of modern the apparatus. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, and I feel like that's a thing where if you miss one note in one of those runs, like the whole thing is just kaput. You're kind of (laughs) SOL from there on out. Yeah. I don't know. That's just just me. Yeah. You'd have to know it like the back of your hand. First movement is the longest of the three movements. In this recording, it was about six and a half minutes. The piece in total is only about 15, 16 minutes long. Mm -hmm. The first movement is titled Allegro, so nice, happy, clipping along tempo. The second movement is Andante.
you just heard the end of the uh, Andante middle movement there, and it, you heard the uh, recorder, recorder <laughs> featured. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks. At the end, and uh, and a, kind of right before that, a, a cool sequence is what we call it, but uh, like a musical chord progression that takes a step down at a time. Mm-hmm. It follows or, a pattern and yeah. just keeps doing that. Mm-hmm. I think it's cool that the recorder is featured like this. Mm-hmm. I had a friend in undergrad, I think you knew Rachel, the clarinetist also, or Maybe. knew of her at least. Probably. Um, but she would go to international recorder competitions, and that's the first time that oh. I realized that the recorder could be played like this. Because, you know, almost everyone plays recorder mm-hmm. in, like, fourth or fifth grade in their music class, and they play something yeah. that's like... <laughs> hot cross buns? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's a drink. P.S. Because I just sang. Also very poorly. Maybe you need to finish your drink because of that bad singing. Um, but it's, it's nice to hear an instrument that's so often thought of as being simple and easy just played really, really well. Mm-hmm. And the end of this movement is really cool, too, because... In a lot of more modern music, like in Beethoven's time, even Mozart's time, you didn't really end movements like this, um, where they end in what I would explain to my students as a question mark. This ends in a half cadence. A half cadence is something where a standard cadence is four, the subdominant, and then five, the dominant, and then one, the tonic. And that's... It sounds like we're coming back to home. It's our home key. Four, five, one. You hear... That's pretty much the only chord progression that you hear in pop music. Mm-hmm. It's four, five, one. You, they say you can play pop music with three chords. Those are the three chords. So or you, two, five, one. Or two, five, one. Yeah. If you want to get fancy, you can If you want to be a little more jazzy. Yeah. Um, the interesting pop music uses it's more like than John three Mayer chords. John two, five, one. Oh. <laughs> Very familiar with this stuff. <laughs> But usually there will be some sort of very fulfilling resolution at the very end of a movement in, you know, music past Bach's time. But I think this was actually very common of his time to end on five. Mm -hmm. So you'd hear like, one, four, four, five. I don't think I did that right. (laughs) (laughs) That's another finish your drink. Sorry, you just made another one. Four, five. Thank you. Something like that. Yeah. And then um, the next <laughs> movement another drink, though. will give you... Yeah, that's another mm-hmm. drink. But you don't have to finish at that time because Lindsay did a good job. <laughs> um, but the next movement starts on tonic. So that's where technically that resolves, but it also begins something new. So I think that's something that's really cool about music of this time period, and especially these concertos, because I know that's not the only time this happens in the Brandenburg mm-hmm. concertos. Yeah. Yeah. Should we... Um, <laughs> Should we listen to the third movement? Let's listen to it. All right, here's the beginning of the third movement. so satisfying because it's a fugue and you hear each voice entering with the da 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 and then but
but it but takes so many times and then it keeps going and you're like well where are the recorders and then finally you get the recorders playing mm. it <laughs> they left <laughs> <laughs> uh but that da da that's one five mm-hmm. really establishing what our home key is or that tonic I don't know that there's a lot more to say about that, um, except listen to it. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. There's one more musical example that we wanted to share with you, and I have something I'm dying to say about it, but I, I want mm-hmm. everyone to hear it first. Okay. Okay. that entice you to listen to more but I think that violin solo is so cool and something I wouldn't have expected of baroque music mm-hmm. and honestly I think Bach is the original metalhead yeah and if if you think this about this you should listen to the fifth Brandenburg concerto yes the harpsichord yeah moment. there's that was, a harpsichord oh, solo that's I mean it's, it's Bonkers. And it's unprecedented. Like, the harpsichord was always just, like, the accompaniment. It's, like, what goes along to just provide the underlying harmony for things. Mm-hmm. But this is a harpsichord solo moment. It's, it's like, so cool. It didn't happen before this, really. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, how, like, five minutes or something. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but it's a it's long. It's long. It's really long. Long harpsichord yeah. cadenza, we would call it. Um, is it in the third movement? I, I want to say it's remember. in the first because I only heard it today. We have the score right here. We could find it, but it might take too long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll keep talking. If you can find it, uh, feel free to chime in. Like I said earlier, I previously only knew about the third Brandenburg Concerto. and Oh, first movement. Yep, you're right. Yeah, because I was listening to it in the car, and as soon as it hit the fifth movement, I was like, or the fifth concerto, I was like, no, 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 got to back up and listen to the fourth one again. So I, like, it doesn't take long to get into it in the fifth concerto. Yeah. Have you ever Mm. tried playing the solo part? No, I have not. I kind (laughs) of want to. Yeah. You want to give it a try? It it sounds fun. It's Um, hard, but fun. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I'd have to start very slow. (laughs) Another piece that was an option for us to do today, or set of pieces, are the solo Bach sonatas and partitas for violin. Mm-hmm. There's three partitas and three sonatas. And they're kind of like one of the big pillars of violin repertoire. Mm-hmm. And I would highly recommend listening to those. Hilary Hahn came out with an updated recording a couple of years ago of partita and sonata one and I think maybe two partita and sonata two. I can't remember. She's amazing. Another good one amazing. if if you're interested in kind of more the historical performance aspect, like a more a Baroque-ish a style would be Rachel Podger. I think she's recorded all of them. Okay. I could be wrong, but yeah, I should check she's that out. well known too. Because yeah. I'm not very familiar with the historical practices. I frequently turn to Lindsay for advice on, <laughs> on playing Bach because I don't I don't play Baroque music 
the same way she does, but it's becoming more a standard practice for people playing even modern instruments when they're playing Bach and Vivaldi, and who's another well-known Baroque Handel, Handel, Telemann, yeah, to like use less vibrato and try to play a little bit more in the style, even though, you know, I'm not, I don't have a Baroque violin, I'm not using the same equipment, but, Mm -hmm. you know, we're interested in, um, bringing out the composer's intent. Mm-hmm. In fact, when listening through some different recordings that we could have used for this, I compared and some of the options were this piece, but performed way differently, like on modern instruments and with a lot of vibrato and a lot of Which sustain. Is, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's like the wavering of the pitch that yeah. you associate with opera singers. <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't very good. I probably could have done more, but... (laughs) So, yeah, and uh, just vibrato and sustain are basically two, the the two most obvious differences. Mm -hmm. So I pretty much was like, yeah, I I listened for a recording that didn't have very much of that because that's more authentic to how it would have been played in the Baroque period. Yeah. Anything else to say about Bach and the Brandenburg Concertos? The violin. There's always more to say about Bach. But <laughs> That's true. He <laughs> is probably, the father. Yeah, I mean... Of everything. He's like a god in he is. music composition. Which is funny that in his Bible where he's worshipping, like, God mm-hmm. is like... I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of full circle. Yeah. The sonatas and partitas are like the violinist Bible. Yeah, it's like required reading. We we yeah. have to learn these pieces. Yeah. Do you know all of them? No. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I should. I should too. I've, I've learned, I think, half of them or so. You're doing better than I am. <laughs> I'm like maybe a third. It, it's a lot. I mean, the, it is the a lot. book I have is like a half inch thick. I'm sure you've heard stories about people learning all six of them in a week. Mm. And that baffles me to no end. Like, did you sleep? Like, how? How did you It makes me question how well they really learned them. <laughs> That's you know a good I mean? point. That's a really but, good point. I mean, I know people give concert series or recital series where they perform all six of them. Um, in like our friend concerts, but Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she because Isai, Eugene Isai, also wrote six unaccompanied yes. sonatas. Um, I actually wrote my master's, like, paper. I did my master's it was a test it wasn't a paper but it was basically like a paper you had to write down memorized it was weird but for my master's degree um I talked about unaccompanied violin works Mm -hmm. and Isai wrote his six violin sonatas because the technical boundaries hadn't really been pushed since Paganini and before Paganini they hadn't really been pushed since Bach so yeah that's why Isai is so hard because he was like how difficult can I make this yeah (laughs) so our friend Elizabeth is pairing a Bach sonata or partita with one of the Isai sonatas and then Mm -hmm. she's playing the recital we saw she played something else I think she always plans to that's cool pair another another piece I saw one of those recitals I just forgot that she was planning on doing all of them oh my gosh she said that and I was like you are queen (laughs) Yeah. I admire you so much. Yeah. And it's a project like years in the making. Yeah. But such a cool project. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Elizabeth. Yeah. Chud Elizabeth. (laughs) Chud Lizzo Bay. 
<laughs> I know, it keeps evolving. Uh, speaking of, <laughs> this is a totally natural segue for us that will make no sense to the listeners. Are you caught up on The Bachelor? No. Oh, okay. I need to. We can't talk about it then, I guess. <laughs> but yes, you need to catch up. Mm-hmm. Hometowns, such a good episode. I know that Kelsey's in them. That's all I know. Yeah. Don't tell me more. I will not. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. I hid my bachelor notebook before you got here. I'm oh, good. really glad I did that. <laughs> I, I keep track you of like all the dates. Notebook. I have a notebook. Yeah, so you would have seen who got eliminated. Really you just said, I them. have notebook. <laughs> so this seems like a great time for us to read your new arrangement. <laughs> yeah. That's our plan now. We're going to go try and play Don't Stop Me Now. I have violin. Let me go play. <laughs> All right. I have music. Oh, wait, that did make sense. <laughs> okay. Should we, should we stop? Sign stop this madness. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, before we stop, I need to beg for money. Thank you to Jesse, who I think might be reading some stuff with us tonight, for being my first Patreon supporter. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Jesse. Jesse uh, and I were carpooling to a gig last weekend and we were listening to some of your podcasts and he was like this is really good oh this is really funny and he kept saying things like that and I was like yay oh and I agreed too <laughs> oh thanks <laughs> <laughs> FYI <laughs> I didn't disagree <laughs> yeah so thank you Jesse I guess I didn't say that you would get a shout out if you're a Patreon supporter but Jesse shout out you can support the podcast for three dollars a month for some really weird reason, you cannot go to Patreon and search Pour Me a Mozart. It does not show up. Hmm. But you can type in patreon.com slash Mozart. There it is. Just hit subscribe, mm-hmm. enter your payment information, and $3 a month. That's like less than a coffee at most places. Mm-hmm. So I'd really appreciate it. Um, if you are a super broke college student and cannot give $3 a month, like at one point I could not, share this podcast with a friend. Leave a five-star rating on iTunes. Write a review. Reviews are great. If you don't feel like writing a review but you want to give some feedback, you can email me at twincitysymphony at gmail.com. The website is twincitysymphony.squarespace.com slash Mozart. I know it's a mouthful. I'm really bad at technology and cannot fix my website. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's it. I didn't say anything dumb, did I? Mm, no more dumb things than I said. So. <laughs> well, that last little bit. I don't care about the stuff before. No, I don't okay. think so. So now we should quit when we're both ahead? Yeah. yeah. All right. Cheers. Cheers. I remember hearing like on public radio or something a few years ago, that there's an actual brain response that is the reason for why we think we like a song better if we've heard it before. Oh. So it was pizza everywhere.